The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We are here to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made 2,000 years ago. When he secured our freedom, when he won the decisive victory, we call it Good Friday for a reason, amen? Because for the Christian, this is the day that we recognize that Jesus defeated Satan, sin, hell, death, all of it. When he cried out, it is finished, it signaled to the universe that the victory had been won. Hallelujah. Amen. And of course, we know that it's good because Sunday's coming. Amen. Amen. However, what I want to do is just spend a few minutes looking at what preceded that victory. You see, the decisive victory of Calvary was preceded by another battle. You know how in every war there seems to be a battle, a particular moment in the war on which the tide of victory swings. So they say that the Battle of Yorktown is where the American Revolution was actually won. The Battle of Waterloo is where Napoleon's dreams of conquering Europe were dashed. And and then, of course, we know that it was at the Battle of Normandy there on D-Day on the shores of that French coast where the tide of the Second World War was shifted in the Allies' favor. Well, for the Christian, Calvary is where the war was won. But what I want to do with you today is go back to another battlefield that preceded that victory. And that's where I believe the the actual decisive moment of the battle was waged. You see, if the war was won on Calvary, then the decisive battle was fought in Gethsemane. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. And I want us to go with the disciples and with Jesus and spend a few minutes together in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, which is still there today, it's a beautiful garden situated, tucked away right there at the base of the Mount of Olives. To this day, it's filled with a grove of beautiful olive trees. Some of those trees are so old, they date back over a thousand years. And the gospel authors tell us that Jesus would regularly retreat to this particular place. He would go there to to seek the Lord, to rest, to pray, to spend time in communion with his Father. But on this night, the night we're going to read about, Jesus hadn't come for rest. He had come to do battle. You see, the horrors of the cross lie just before him. But by the time Jesus leaves this garden, the decisive battle had already been determined. So we we begin reading there in verse 39 of Luke 22. It says this, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation, Then he himself withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
When he rose from prayer and he went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. He asked, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So here is Jesus in the greatest moment of trial that he would ever face, facing the shadow of Calvary. He asks his disciples to pray with him, and they saw logs instead. (laughs) It's not their finest moment, to be sure. In his greatest hour of need, he needed them, but they fell asleep. But, But we can't really be too hard on them. Why? Well, like them, I think we all share a willing spirit, but a weak flesh. Amen? And yet, incidentally, I think it's worth pointing out that it was their their lack of prayer in this moment that caused them to fail in the next moments when the Roman soldiers showed up. We know that all the disciples abandoned the Lord, and that should serve as a word of warning to all of us. The battles that you're going to face tomorrow are going to be won or lost in your prayer closet today. Let's not mince words. Prayerlessness is a sin. We need to be people of prayer because we need to be ready for the moment, the trial, when it comes. They failed that test. Well, Jesus, he recognizes that this is a battle that he has to face all on his own. And so he goes about a stone's throw beyond them. And Luke tells us that he falls to his knees in prayer. Now, there are a number of different postures that you'll see people praying in throughout the scriptures. You'll see people standing and sitting and kneeling and sometimes even prostrating themselves in prayer. Incidentally, I think it's kind of ironic that one posture of prayer you don't see in the Gospels is people bowing their heads, closing their eyes, and folding their hands, you know, the one we are most familiar with. I I personally think... It was probably like a Sunday school teacher that came up with that one, and she was tired of the kids, like, you know, messing around with each other during prayer. Listen, just fold your hands, little Billy, you know. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I mean, it, it can be a good practice to close your eyes during prayer. It helps keep you from getting distracted. However, I just want to point out that the typical posture for prayer in that day was actually to stand with hands outstretched towards heaven. And that's what you would typically see people doing when they were praying. However, Luke is giving us an insight into the kind of prayer Jesus was doing when he tells us that he fell to his knees. You see, this was war. And in the Christian life, the way we fight is through prayer. And when you're facing a particularly intense battle, that's when you go to your knees. I love that song that came out recently by Phil Wickham, a friend of this ministry. The battle belongs, right? And there's that line in the song. He says, so when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. And I share that with you today because I know some of you in here are in the midst of an intense battle. You're battling for your kids. You're battling for your family. You're battling for their soul. You're battling for the lost. We got some intercessors in the house today. And when you find yourselves in a battle where it becomes so intense that you can't stand, you just try doing what Jesus did. You get on your knees and you begin to pray. And that's where the victory will be won. Amen? Amen. Now, this battle gets so intense that... Luke tells us in verse 44 that he's in anguish as he prays. The Greek word there is agonizo. 
And it describes a struggle or a wrestling. It's, it's the word that was used in Greek competitions to describe two wrestlers who were duking it out on the mat. Jesus is wrestling in prayer here. And then he goes on to say, and he sweat as it were great drops of blood. I just want to remind you that I don't believe Luke is speaking metaphorically here. Luke was actually a doctor by profession and trade before he became a disciple. And there have been documented cases over the last century, although rare, it's a condition that is known as hematridosis, in which a person under intense anxiety and stress can actually, it can cause the capillaries in the bloodstream to burst so that your sweat actually mingles with your own blood. And I believe that's what was happening in Jesus. He was undergoing a pressing. In fact, did you know this, that the word Gethsemane actually means olive press? And the way they would make olive oil at that time, which is so useful for so many purposes, is they would use this heavy stone slab and they would crush the olive. It probably happened in that garden. That was probably the primary purpose for this garden. And and the, the crushing of the stone on the pulp of the olive would release the oil and it would pool and it would be drained and collected so that it would become useful. And a similar crushing was happening in Jesus' soul. And some of you know what that crushing feels like. You're just under the weight of a crushing. And I just want to let you know that the crushing produces the oil and it releases the oil and the fragrance of Christ in your life as you go through that. But what was it that was crushing Jesus on this night? What was he wrestling with to the point of sweating great drops of blood? We don't have to wonder. He tells us right there in his prayer. We find it in verse 42 when he says, Father, let this cup pass. There's something about this cup that he was being asked to drink by his heavenly Father that troubled him, that caused him turmoil, that was a crushing to his soul. So let's, let's dive in and talk for just a couple of moments about the cup that Jesus was being asked to drink, because I see in it a couple of different things that it symbolizes. Number one, I believe the cup symbolized the suffering that Jesus would endure on the cross. You see, Jesus himself drew a connection between the cup that he speaks of here and the cup of his own blood earlier in the same evening. As Jesus is sharing what would be the the last meal he would ever have with his disciples. It was the Passover meal that he shared with them. And he institutes the Lord's Supper. There were a number of cups of wine that are drunk throughout the the, the traditional ceremony of the Seder, the the celebration of the Passover. And Jesus takes a particular cup, and, and it says this in Matthew 26, verse 28. Let's read this together out loud. It says, Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This would have been the third cup of the meal. We know it as the cup of redemption. For us, this is the cup that we partake of, and we will be doing this in a few moments when we partake of communion together. But what I want to draw your attention to is this idea that in order for Jesus, or in order, in order for us to be able to drink that cup, the cup of communion, Jesus had to drink from the cru- cup of suffering. Crucifixion is 
by far and away, the, the worst form of execution that has ever been devised by humans. I mean, all the paintings that you've seen of the cross, usually Jesus doesn't look so bad. He's usually got a perfectly placed little bead of blood kind of going down his chin from where the crown of thorns is, but he looks, you know, he looks pretty good, all things considered. Even in the, the most graphic portrayals of the cross, like the passion of the Christ, I, I don't think they go far enough to depict what actually occurred when someone was being crucified. Picture six to eight inch spikes being driven through both of his wrists and his feet. The, the, the nails would have severed the main tendon that runs from the arm up through the shoulder, causing excruciating pain. But then as they dropped the, the post of the cross into the ground, it would have separated his shoulders from his body so that he all the weight then rested on his diaphragm. And, and the only way that the criminal could get a breath, because all that weight pushes down on your lungs, was to arch his back against the the splintered beam of the cross and inhale deeply before falling back down and all that weight comes back down and 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 death by crucifixion didn't come through loss of blood it actually happened slowly and agonizingly through asphyxiation you would drown in a pool of your own blood in your lungs it was horrible but even prior to the horrors of the cross we know that Jesus endured several beatings and a scourging 39 lashes by the soldiers. The whipping was so severe that it would have torn the flesh from his body. The, 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 the prophets describe how his face was marred beyond that of any man. You couldn't even tell Jesus was a man because they beat him so severely and, and all of the swelling and all the rest. And then adding insult to injury, the gospels tell us that they spat on him. Can you just think about that for a moment? I mean, it's the, the horrors of that. It's, to this day, one of the most insulting things that can happen to a person. If you spit on someone, it is the height of insult. But it's heightened even more so by the fact that Jesus had used his mouth to do so much good, hadn't he? He used his mouth to bring heaven down, to heal the sick. He used his spit to create eyes with mud and give sight to the blind. And this is how they repaid him. And yet as horrific as the physical suffering was that Jesus endured, and that part of the cup, I don't think it's what he recoiled from in Gethsemane. You see, there was something far worse than the physical torture that he was about to endure. And that's the second thing the cup symbolizes. I, I believe it symbolizes the wrath of God against sin. You see, God is perfectly righteous and holy and pure. The, the Bible tells us he dwells in unapproachable light. Angels surround his throne and declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He can't be in the presence of sin without dealing with it, without inflicting wrath against it, which I suppose creates a problem for God because God loves sinners. So he has a problem because how does he love sinners without judging the sin? And the solution was to store up his accumulated wrath for sin in this cup. Picture it in your mind. Picture every heinous crime, every wicked thought, every vile act, every lie, every sin you've ever committed, all filling this cup. 
Now multiply what's in that cup by all the people who have ever lived throughout all of human history. It's all accumulating and it's filled to the brim with God's wrath towards sin. That's the picture. Jeremiah describes this cup for us in Jeremiah 25 verse 15. I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This is the cup I believe Jesus was referring to. My sin and your sin was in that cup. And when Jesus went to the cross, he drank it to the dregs. He experienced the fullness of God's wrath poured out on him. And the Bible says that in that moment, he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You see, there was a purpose in that moment. He became so you might become. He took God's wrath and endured the Father turning his face away in that moment where the sky went black and Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that God turned his back on his son so that he could welcome you and I into his presence as his sons and daughters. And this, friends, is what troubled Jesus and caused him so much anguish. So what does that mean for us? It tells us this about the cup. It tells us because Jesus drank it that the cross is the only way to God. You see, when Jesus prayed, Father, if there's any other means, if there's any other path, If there's any other road, then let's go with that way. Let's go with that. The silence of heaven speaks volumes. It tells us definitively that the cross is the only way to secure humanity's salvation. Surely if people could have gotten to heaven through their own merit or through their good deeds or through their own efforts or or by doing something or giving something or going somewhere, then God would have allowed for that, but he didn't. And that tells us that the cross is the only way. But there's one more thing I wanna draw your eyes to because I truly believe it is the key to the victory that Jesus experienced, but I also, beyond that, believe that this is the key to every victory that you will ever experience, because all of us are in a war. We are in a battle, and it is a battle for the ages, and what's at stake is nothing less than the eternal souls of men and women around the globe. You are in a battle. You are in a spiritual war, and the thing that will secure your victory is the same thing that brought Jesus victory on this day, so what was it? It was found. You can be found in what he prays there at the end of verse 42. He says, Lord, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You see, all the woes that we experience in our world, all of the calamity, all of the the heartbreak, all of the catastrophes, all of the pain, all of the suffering, it stems from a reversal of that prayer. When we put our own way and our own will above his, we bring pain into our own heart. And you can see this on all the pages of history going all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. There in the garden, God gave them free reign. He said, you can eat of all the trees except this one tree. And they chose to assert their own will and say, no, 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 I know better than God. And they put their own will above the will of the Father. And that sent the world into this tailspin of misery and pain that we've experienced ever since. 
But even going back before Adam and Eve, you can go back before that. Because Isaiah, the prophet, gives us this glimpse into the heavenly scene before there was a world or a cosmos or, or a galaxy or a sun or a moon or stars or any of that. He tells us of this time when Satan, who was originally an angelic being named Lucifer, and he was the anointed cherub who covers, and he was beautiful, but he said in his heart, this is Isaiah 14, 14, he said, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Five times in that text, Satan says, I will, I will, I will. And yet standing in contrast to the the self-exaltation of humanity, the pride of Lucifer asserting their own will, Jesus lived his entire life by saying, thy will. When he was just a young boy, he said, I must be about my father's business. On another occasion, he said, my food, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. And there was that other time where he said, for I am come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus found victory in submission to the will of his father, and so will you. It's not about you getting God to bend to your will. It's about you coming under the authority of heaven. It's about you submitting your heart, your mind, your will to the will of heaven. That's where heaven comes down. That's where victory is found. And that's where Jesus found his victory on the cross. Amen. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, listen. Because Jesus submitted willingly to the Father, because he drank from the cup of God's wrath, we get to drink from the cup of his righteousness. Because he was cursed, we can partake of communion. Because he suffered, we can be made sons and daughters. He was forsaken that you might be forgiven. He took your sin and drank it down so you could take his righteousness and drink it in. And in one of the most staggering and mind-boggling statements that you will find anywhere in Scripture, I want you to hear God's heart concerning Jesus as he pays for your sin and mine on the cross. Listen to Isaiah 53.10. Actually, let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Go back to that first phrase, it was the Lord's will. Some translations read, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? Because he knew what it would bring about. He knew what it would result in. So many. Millions, millions, and millions of people. We joined two billion Christians around the world this weekend in celebrating the victory of Jesus that we've been welcomed in because he was cast aside. He was, he was, he was pushed out so that we could be welcomed in, and he willingly did it. He gladly did it, though he despised the shame. There was a joy that was set before Jesus as he went to the cross, and that joy was you, and that joy was me. Our victory is found in Jesus. Jesus today. Praise the Lord. So we're going to move into a time of communion today. And and there's this dual thing going on in this moment where we are somber 
where we recognize the the price that was paid to secure our salvation. We weren't purchased with transitory things like silver or gold, but we were bought with the precious blood of God's own son. And there's a weightiness to that. There's a seriousness to that. And yet at the same moment, there is this deep, triumphant, glorious, exultant thing that is happening in the same moment. Because his victory is our victory. His glory is your glory. His righteousness is your righteousness. The the love that the Father had for Jesus is the love that the Father has for you. You are his son or his daughter if you have put your faith in Jesus, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you receive the offer of forgiveness that he freely extends? The Bible is so broad in its invitation. People say Christianity is narrow. And that's true if you're talking about the fact that Jesus is the only way. But let me remind you that, that Christianity is also broad in its invitation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, praise the Lord. And you can call upon Jesus' name today. And your past can be forgiven. You can be forgiven of all your sins. You can release that backpack, that burden of guilt and shame that you've carried around with you because of the things that you've done wrong. You can have his peace flood your heart. You can have his power infuse you so you can live a victorious Christian life so that you can set aside and let go of the things that have hampered you and hindered you from entering into the life that God purposed for you to live. There is a glorious life filled with the Holy Spirit power from heaven on high and and beyond all those things which are wonderful. You can know that you'll spend forever with Jesus in heaven. That your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior or perhaps you did that a long time ago, but you've wandered from the Lord and you need to recommit your heart and your life to Jesus today, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that. You say, how does it work? What does it look like? What, what do I need to sign up for? What class do I need to take? Well, you can't do any of that. <laughs> See, the, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So for those of you to whom this pertains, can we just exercise the truth of that statement? Can we just say together out loud, will you repeat after me? Say, Jesus is Lord. Praise the Lord. You are halfway to salvation. (laughs) If you confess that with your lips, and then if you seal it in your heart, by believing that when Jesus went to the cross, he was paying for your sin. When he rose from the dead, he was, he was conquering the grave on your behalf. If you will put your trust in him, he will come into your life and you'll never be the same. So for any and all to whom the Spirit of God might be tugging on the strings of your heart, it's not emotionalism, it's not a moment, it's not just some manufactured thing. The Spirit of the living God is in this place because Jesus triumphed over the grave. And he's calling you into his heart. He's calling you home. This is what your whole life has been leading up to. And so you just pray this prayer. Pray it with me out loud as a way of affirming before everyone in this room that you're a believer. Say, dear Jesus, I love you. 
Thank you for loving me. For washing me. Cleansing me. Forgiving me. Through your cross. By your blood. I receive the gift of salvation. By grace. Through faith. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.